What do you believe? And why do you believe what you believe? So that's the question. That's really what's on my heart. That is God's people. I'm not sure that we know what we believe and we don't know why we believe what we believe. And then we're not able to share that with other people. And I don't think you really know something until you know what it is and why it is and how you can then convey that to other people. So we're in a sermon series right now called Worldview and Focus. And we kicked that off last week and we looked at some of the dominant worldviews in our society right now. And really what I'm most focusing in on is the worldview that we claim is our own, which is for some of us would, would be what we would call a biblical worldview. So we wanna talk about worldview some more because it's important. Your worldview determines what you believe. And what you believe determines what you value, what you think is good, what you think is important. And what you value then determines how you live your life, the choices you make, the decisions you make, the behavior that you act out in your life. But all of that is rooted in worldview. And your worldview determines how you answer eight big questions. These are the eight big questions I put in front of you last week. Your worldview is the determining factor about how you'll answer these eight questions. Here they are in case you missed them last week. What is truth? Number two, is there a God? And if so, what's he like? Is he limited or is he limitless? Is he sovereign? Question number three, how'd we get here? Question four, what's wrong with the world? Question five, how do we fix it? What's the solution? Who am I? Why am I here? And what happens after I die? Those are important questions. I think you can agree with me about that. And as I talk to people and I bring up some of these questions, I want to ask them as they begin to give me answers to those questions, I want to ask, what is the truth source that you've gone to to determine how you answer those questions? How did you come to those conclusions? How did you reach those decisions? How did you find those to be the answers that you hold to with these very important questions? I'm really interested to know that. Most people don't really know why they answer the questions that they answer that way. Typically today they'll say, well, you know, that's just kind of what I think, sort of how I feel. I just kind of go with my gut, you know. I I just kind of try to reason it out. Uh, I I really, I'm a science kind of person. You know, I like to make it make sense and figure things out that way. And and, and then I get a chance to talk about why I believe what what I believe. And I'll talk about because I, I believe the Bible is objective truth. It's the unchanging truth. It's the inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative, eternal word of God. And granted, that sounds as ridiculous to them as what they just said to me may sound ridiculous to me. But here's the thing. My worldview, yes, is a worldview that involves faith. And oftentimes these folks will go, well, I'm not into faith. But, but the reality is every worldview depends on faith. And, and I said this last week, and I, and I believe this to be true, that here's the thing. The other worldviews require more faith to believe them than the faith required to believe the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview, yes, it's grounded in faith, but our faith is not a blind faith. In fact, the faith that believers in Christ, those of us who hold to a biblical worldview, our faith is not a blind faith. In fact, our faith is very logical. It's rooted in a lot of logic, rooted in a lot of reason, and believe it or not, 
There's a lot of science that's there as well. And these folks will ask, well, well why do you believe the Bible? Why, why, why do you believe the Bible? And, and that's where I get to say, well, that's how I was raised. How many of you would say that? Well, that's how I was raised. That's a terrible answer. <laughs> if that's what we're teaching our children, hey, listen, we believe the Bible because that's what Papa taught me and his Papa taught him. And, you know, we're, we're church going people. And that's how we were raised. If that's what you're telling your high school senior and they're sitting in bio 101 next semester at some school somewhere and this conversation comes up and they get asked the question, well, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe the Bible? And if their answer is because that's how I was raised, they are toast. They don't have a chance in that moment and in that classroom. How many of you today, just to be honest, would say, I'm not really sure how I would answer the question, why do you believe the Bible? Right? And, and to be honest, I know a lot of you are like, I don't want to raise my hand. That's embarrassing because probably everybody here is supposed to know the answer to that question. To be honest with you, I don't think that I'm always walking around with a good answer to that question on the tip of my tongue. We kind of have a lot of our go-to patent kind of answers as Christians, you know. But I, what I want to do today is I want to help us with that. I want us to have a good answer to that question. Why do you believe the Bible? Why have you chosen that as your truth source? So let's dive in. Here we go today. You got something to write with? You got something to write on? Take out your worship guide. There's some blank space there in the middle of that. Let's dig in. So somebody says to me, you don't really hold to the Bible as your source of truth, do you? And I say, yes, I do. I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses who lived at the same time of other eyewitnesses. These eyewitnesses report supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies. And they claim that their writings were from God, not from man. Their writings are divine rather than human in origin. That answer sounds a lot better, right? Than because that's what my dad taught me. That's what my mama always said. You know where I got that answer, by the way? Vody Bauckham. That's right. Who was that that said that? Pastor Johnny. Yes, I got it from Vody Bauckham. If you've never listened to Vody Bauckham, you need to check him out. V O D D I E B A U C H A M. He's just a teacher, a preacher of God's word that God has blessed my life with. And I've learned so much from him. But Johnny, part two to that question. Do you know where Vody got the answer to that question? Ha! <laughs> from the Bible. And that's where we're going to turn our hearts in just a moment, too. We're going to look into Scripture. But now I can hear my friends with other worldviews going, uh-uh, that's circular argument. You can't say, I believe the Bible because the Bible says to believe the Bible. You can't say the Bible's trustworthy because the Bible says that it's trustworthy. That's circular reasoning. That's a circular argument. You can't say, I believe the Bible because the Bible tells me to believe the Bible. And they're not wrong if they accuse me of circular reasoning. But in order to back up their worldview, they also have to use circular reasoning, right? Think about that. The secularist, the secular humanist, the Marxist, the atheist, they have to say this. 
Well, my source of truth is human reason because that's what my human reason tells me. Hello, right? Same thing. My truth source is science because science tells me that, right? Same thing. Or the moral therapeutic deist that we talked about last week. Well, my source of truth is my feelings, my heart, my gut, because that's what my gut's telling me. Well, in all those cases, that's circular reasoning, right? What's the difference? Science, human reason, or their gut feeling, for them, that's their highest authority for truth. So, of course, they're going to appeal to their highest authority of truth. What's my highest authority of truth? The Bible. So I'm going to do the very same thing they're doing. I'm going to appeal to my highest authority for truth, and that's the Bible. That's God's word. But they'll say to me, but, but, but you got to not argue from the Bible. Look, you came to this duel with your sword. I came to this duel with my sword. You stick with yours, I'll stick with mine. And if you're intimidated by my sword, that's not really my problem. But I'm not going to lay my sword down to accommodate you. You argue from your source of highest authority, and so will I, and mine's going to be the Word of God. So we can all agree that we're starting from circular reasoning, but here's the difference. The Bible, the Word of God, the source of absolute, objective, unchanging, eternal truth. Watch this. It's actually filled with more logic, more rationale, and more scientific proof than what the other worldviews can bring to the table. And you're going to see that today and in the coming weeks here. And listen, I'm thankful for that. I am. I'm thankful that our faith is not a blind faith. I'm thankful for the rationale behind it. I'm thankful for the logic behind it. I'm thankful for the scientific evidences behind it. But, but really, I don't even need all that stuff because the Word of God is my source of ultimate truth. I'm thankful for all of that, but God's Word is my highest authority. Therefore, as followers of Jesus, our first and our best answer when these questions are posed to us is not to make a beeline for logic or not to make a beeline for reason, although we could, or not to make a beeline to science, although we could. When we're asked these questions as followers of Jesus, our first and our best answer starts with a phrase that sounds something like this, because the Bible says, the Bible says, God's word says, that's, that's our sword. We want to hang on to that. We don't have to defend the Bible. Some of you think, I don't know if I can defend the You don't have to defend the Bible. Charles Spurgeon said the Bible's like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. Just turn it loose. It'll defend itself. So it is with God's word. You don't have to know all the arguments. You don't have to defend it. Just speak it. Just turn it loose and God's word will take care of itself. So don't be fooled into laying your sword down and go, okay, well, let's just talk about science. Let's just talk about, we could do all that, but don't set your sword down. There's a song that we used to sing. Y'all might remember this song. I stand alone on the word of God, the Bible, right? The B-I-B-L-E. And I'm impressed at your spelling skills today. So kudos to everybody for that. So help me out with this. So why do we choose to believe the Bible as our source for truth? Let's read it together, all right? I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents 
written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. These eyewitnesses report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Johnny's right. Pastor Vody kind of put that terminology, I think, together, and he's preached this message so many times. I'm so thankful for that. But what I love about Vody Balkum is he roots it in the truth of God's Word. And this statement comes from 2 Peter chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, let's go there. This is going to be our main passage today. 2 Peter chapter 1. And you may know this about this man by the name of Peter. In terms of people that knew Jesus and walked with Jesus and spent time with Jesus, nobody was probably closer to Jesus than Peter was. And when you get to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, it almost sounds like somebody has just put the question to Peter, why should we believe you? Why should we believe the scriptures? And so Peter comes out with this in verse 16. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's, someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now let's dive into this answer to the question today. And let's take the first part of that. The Bible is a reliable collection, a reliable collection of historical documents. Listen, this book is not like any other book in the world. And I'm going to show you why. This is the book of all books that tells us about the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. This book was not written or put together by one man. This book is a reliable collection, a collection of historical documents. Peter says, we didn't come to you with cleverly devised myths, fables, fiction, storytelling. That's not what we're doing. This is a reliable collection of historical documents. The documents that we have in this book, which is a book of books, the documents that we have here were written on three different continents. Africa, Asia, and Europe. These documents, reliable historical documents, were written in three different languages, Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. These reliable historical documents were written by 40 different human authors with a variety of backgrounds from king to general to fisherman to tax collector and on and on. Contained in this is 66 volumes written in three languages, three continents by 40-something authors. These 66 volumes cover hundreds of different 
topics and subjects that were written over a period of time of about 1,500 years. And yet this is one cohesive, unified story of God's love for man and his plan to redeem man from his or her sin by the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Listen, just on its face, as a literary document, you would have to admit, based on what I just told you, I think the most skeptical person would have to admit there is no other book in the world that even comes close to being like this book that we have before us here today. Not only that, but there's been 25,000 separate archaeological digs. I'm not talking about 25,000 archaeological findings, 25,000 separate archaeological digs that each have produced hundreds, sometimes thousands of ancient artifacts and not one of those, all 25,000 of those related to the Bible. And yet in all those findings, not one piece of evidence has ever been found that would dispute or conflict or contradict the Bible. In fact, just the opposite. The vast majority have only served to confirm time and again what we read in God's Word. We also have over 6,000 just New Testament. We're not even talking about the Old Testament. If you go to Israel with me next year, we're going to go to Qumran where you'll see the, the Old Testament scrolls that were found there uh, near the Dead Sea. But we're not even talking about that today. Let's just talk about the New Testament. New Testament alone, we've got over 6,000 ancient New Testament manuscripts or portions of manuscripts. And with these manuscripts, we can go back. The oldest of those go back to within a few decades of when Jesus lived. Now, you may be sitting here going, that doesn't mean anything to me, Pastor Joel, because I don't know anything about ancient literature or historical documents. Yeah, I, I normally don't either, but I had to study to talk to you guys today. And so here's why that's really impressive. If you take some, some other ancient literature, for example, like Aristotle's Poetics, right? Nobody disputes that that's real. Nobody disputes that he wrote that. And yet we only have 12 ancient or less than 12 ancient manuscripts of Aristotle's poetics compared to 6,000 of the New Testament. And unlike the New Testament, whose oldest manuscripts that we have date within a few decades of the life of Jesus, Aristotle's poetics, the oldest manuscript we have, comes into play about a thousand years after Aristotle lived. Huge gap in the timing there. Another example is Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, another ancient document that nobody in our college or universities disputes the reliability, the authenticity of that, but yet there's less than 10 of those ancient manuscripts and over a thousand years in between Julius Caesar and the oldest of those manuscripts that exist. The closest comparison that we have to the volume and the timing of the New Testament manuscripts still doesn't even come close, but the closest comparison would be Homer's Iliad. We have about 200 ancient manuscripts of Homer's Iliad, but yet there were 1,200 years that passed between Homer and the oldest of those manuscripts. So, so that's amazing, I think, right? But then this question comes up from skeptics, but but didn't people early on manipulate the scriptures? I mean, like, you know, I, I watched a movie one time or there was something on the History Channel one time. Huh. 
And, and they were talking about how there were these overzealous monks. And, and so they kind of sat down with the Bible and they put things in that they wanted to go in and they took things out that they wanted to be, didn't want to be there. And so they manipulated it. And so the Bible that we have today is not what the Bible was 2000 years ago. Okay. I hear you history channel. I hear you Hollywood, but here's a big problem with that. That means that those overzealous monks would have had to track down over 6,000 ancient manuscripts or portion of manuscripts, change them without being detected and not tell anybody. That seems a little far-fetched. It gets a little more far-fetched when you consider this. When Jesus said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations, and they actually literally did that. And when they went to these other nations, there were other people groups that spoke other language, languages. So within these 6,000 ancient documents that we have, we also find ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, not only in Greek, but also in Syriac and in Coptic and in Latin. So that means these overzealous monks not only would have to precisely change all 6,000 manuscripts and portion of manuscripts to all match up, but they would also have to learn how to lie in three other languages, Syriac and Coptic and Latin to be able to pull that off. There's one other big problem. The early pastors of the church, historically we call those the early church fathers, but they were really the pastors, the leaders of the church in the early years from let's say like 150 AD to 300 AD. Nothing much has changed. I write my sermon word for word every week. I have a manuscript right now up here in front of me because I'm old and I don't trust myself anymore, right? And sometimes people that mean well go, you should trust the Holy Spirit. I do. I trust him Monday through Saturday when we're studying God's word to help me get this right. And I still trust him in the moment that I'm delivering it, but I'm not doing anything different that those early church pastors didn't do. We can look back today. We have copies today of their sermons from those years, early years, right after the time of Christ. And they didn't just write sermons, but they wrote commentaries. They wrote other resources too. And we can go back and we can look at those early pastors' libraries. And you know what, what has been discovered? People have done this when they've gone back and they've looked at that and they've taken all the references to the New Testament from those early sermons and early commentaries, you can reproduce the very New Testament that you and I have in our Bibles today with the exception of 11 verses. So here's the, here's the challenge then the skeptics have. So you got these overzealous monks who want to change the Bible to make it say what they want it to say, but they got to get their hands on 6,000 different ancient manuscripts. They got to learn how to lie in Coptic and Syriac and in Latin. And then they got to get the library of all the early church pastors and they got to alter them also to get them to match up with everything else that they have manipulated. That's ridiculous. Then they would say, okay, well, look, here's the problem. Okay, tell me another problem. I go, well, here's the problem. Here's why you can't believe the Bible. Because it's been translated so many times for so many years. And they'll say, you know, like the telephone game. Everybody, everybody you played the telephone game? Everybody played the telephone game? So like Eric, I'll tell something to Eric. I'll whisper something to his ear. And then he'll whisper to his wife, Allison, what I said, and then she'll take it down here to Jan. And we're going to go all the way around the room. Every single person, we're going to transmit that message from me. It's going to go person to person to person to person. And then you know how the telephone game works. When it comes back to me, it's just 
pure and utter nonsense, right? It's going to be like nothing that I said at all. And they go, that's, how, that's what's happened with the Bible. It's been translated so many times, we don't know what it said. Yes, we know what it said. I just told you why we know what it said. Because we have 6,000 ancient manuscripts or portions of manuscripts. But what about all the times it's been translated? Well, here's not how we translated the Bible. You don't translate the Bible like this, that Allison translated translates it based on what Eric said and that Jan translates it based on what Allison said because we have the 6,000 old documents, manuscripts or portions of manuscripts. Jan doesn't have to go through their translation. She goes back to the source. The 150th person down the line doesn't have to trust the 149 translations that came before them. They get to go back to the very start of the source. Does that make sense, everybody, what I'm saying to you today? And today it's really amazing that with our technology and with our advancements and the fact that we continue to find more and more through archaeology, ancient manuscripts, we have more reason to believe that the New Testament that you and I have in front of us today is the same New Testament that they had in 100 AD, 150 AD, 200 AD. It's an absolute miracle that we hold in our hands. So what are we saying? I choose to believe the Bible because it's a reliable collection of historical documents that were written down by eyewitnesses, by eyewitnesses. Let's look at that. First John 1, let me show you this. Another disciple of Jesus in First John 1, verse 1, he's trying to make a point, I think. And he says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Listen, these 66 volumes weren't written by people who some years later ate a bad taco and had some weird visions and then wrote it down. No, these people experienced this stuff. They live this. John said, we heard it. We touched it. We saw these things with our own eyes. What are we saying? We have a reliable historical document here. That's good. Written down by eyewitnesses. That's even better. But here's something even better. It was written down by eyewitnesses during the time of other eyewitnesses. Now, here's why that's important. That means if Sean knows the truth, and I'm not telling the truth about what I know. Sean knows, and she can call me out on that. I'm claiming something that can be falsifiable. It can be verified. It can be tested because there's eyewitnesses who lived at the time of other eyewitnesses, right? Listen to what Paul says. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That's a historical fact. That he was buried. That's a historical fact. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. In other words, he fulfilled the prophecies. He died, he was buried, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. That's a historical fact. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. And this is one example too, by the way, when he says, and he appeared to them and to the 12. This is where those who refuse to believe the Bible will go, hey, look, see, 
Right there, there's one of those problems with the Bible. There's one of those contradictions in the Bible. There's one of those places where the Bible got it wrong because it said after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to the 12. And what happened to Judas? Do you know what happened to Judas? He hung himself. He died. So the 12 went to 11. But some of our versions say that, versions say that Jesus appeared to the 12. Oh, you got me. I guess you're right. Oh, but wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. Because I remember in Acts chapter 1, if you actually kept reading the rest of the Bible, you would find out that one of the first things the disciples did when their number went down to 11 is they took the number back up to 12. They selected a man by the name of Matthias to step into the role. He met the qualifications and he became the 12th. So when the Bible says he appeared to the 12, it's because there was still a the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom Paul says are still alive. Obviously not right now. Again, they go, these people aren't still alive. Paul's writing this in the first century. He's writing, as I'm writing this right now, these people are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep, that's an old way of saying they've passed away. Don't be confused when the Bible talks about those that have fallen asleep. It's just what we say. They passed away. They've, they've died, right? And then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to me, one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Here's what Paul just said. Paul's just said to the believers in Corinth, Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again. And if you don't believe me, there's over 500 witnesses, most who are still alive in Jerusalem. So my friends at Corinth, Paul is saying, if you want to take a vacation next summer, I can give you names and addresses and you can go knock on people's doors and they'll invite you in and they will tell you how they saw Jesus live and they watched him die and they watched him be taken off the cross. They knew he went into the tomb. But over the course of 40 days, they bumped into him numerous times. They'll tell you that. We have eyewitnesses who lived during the time of other eyewitnesses. That's important because then it can be verified. It can be tested. Is this true or not? So what are we saying? Why do I believe the Bible? Why should you believe the Bible? Well, I choose to believe the Bible because we have a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of eyewitnesses. And these eyewitnesses report supernatural events. Let me take you back to what Peter said in 1 Peter. He says in verse 17, for when he received, this is Jesus, honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son. Two times God spoke out of heaven and said about Jesus, this is my beloved son. One time at his baptism, good class. Second time on the Mount of Transfiguration. When you go to Israel with me next year, we're going to go to that mountain. We're going to stand there. Here's what went down on that mountain. God's voice says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And he says, we ourselves, Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is describing something that was supernatural that happened. They're on this mountain, Peter and James and John one day with Jesus 
And all of a sudden, standing there with Jesus are two guys who lived 1,500 years before Jesus named Moses and Elijah. And God's glory cascaded down from heaven and God the Father spoke out of heaven and said, this is my son and whom I'm well pleased. And Peter's going, I'm telling you, we have seen supernatural things happen. We're not passing down rules and regulations. We are eyewitnesses who lived at the time of eyewitnesses, and we're reporting to you supernatural things that happen. That's why we're telling you he walked on the water, and he healed the sick, and he raised the dead, and he died on the cross, and Mac Daddy of them all, he rose from the dead. And there's over 500 witnesses that could tell you about it today is what these men are saying. So what are we saying? What do we believe? We're saying we believe, we believe because daddy believed. Come on, church. What are we saying? We believe the Bible. It is our source of truth. It makes more rational, logical, and scientific sense than what any other worldview can bring to the table. Why? We choose to believe that the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. These eyewitnesses report supernatural events next that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. These weren't just like standalone weird things that happened. They were spoken about by God hundreds, thousands of years before they happened. Look back to the text. Peter says, verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Peter's saying you need to watch these prophecies because he's saying a lot of them have already been fulfilled, but not all of them have been fulfilled yet. Like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. One day you're not going to need these prophecies anymore. One day they're all going to be fulfilled. No more lamp is going to be needed. The day is going to dawn and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, I've taken in the past an entire Sunday morning to preach this sermon on how Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus. And, And I'm not going to try to hit you with two sermons today. This one's a little heavy enough, but I'll just kind of summarize it this way. So there's at least 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament that Jesus has already perfectly fulfilled. People way smarter than me who deal with mathematics and probabilities and things of that nature did some studying on that. And the probability, the chance of one individual perfectly fulfilling those 300 prophecies, the mathematical possibilities of that would be one in a number that is too big for us to fit on that screen up there. It's an impossibility, really, is what it is. It would have to be a miracle. So if we take those 300, let's make this a little more manageable. We take those 300 Old Testament prophecies and we shrink them down to just eight. What would be the mathematical probability that one man could perfectly fulfill just eight out of those 300 Old Testament prophecies. Prophecies like where he would be born, which the Old Testament prophesied about. When he would be born, which the Old Testament prophesied about. How he would be born, which the Old Testament prophesied about. How many pieces of silver he would be betrayed with. Specifics like that. What are the chances that one person would perfectly fulfill just eight of those 300? And it would come down to something that is a lot like this. 
We go to Texas today. Why would you go to Texas? Because God bless Texas, right? No, no, no. We go to Texas today. I saw some of you dozing, so I just make sure you're with me. We go to Texas today, and we've got silver dollars. And we, we take all these silver dollars, but one silver dollar, we put a red X on the back of that silver dollar. And now we start stacking these silver dollars up across the state of Texas. You cover, this is the mathematical probability that Jesus could have fulfilled just eight of the 300 Old Testament prophecies. You cover the state of Texas in silver dollars, two feet thick, the whole state. You ever been to Texas? That's a lot of ground to cover, right? And you stack those silver dollars two feet thick across the whole surface of Texas. And then you fly over there with a buddy in an airplane. And just somewhere over the state of Texas, randomly, you kick your blindfolded buddy out of the plane. Because you don't want to be that guy. And he pulls the parachute. He lands somewhere in Texas on top of a landmass that's covered with silver dollars two feet high. And he gets one pick. One opportunity to flip one silver dollar over and find the one with the red X on it. And that's the probabilities of one person fulfilling eight of the 300 prophecies out of the Old Testament. And Jesus fulfilled way more than eight. He fulfilled them all as they related to his first coming. And he will fulfill them all as it relates to his second coming. What are we saying? Say it with me. Y'all with me? What? We believe, we believe. For real? Why? Because if you can't answer the question, why do you believe the Bible? You can't answer the rest of the questions. If that's our source of truth, then we, and we don't know, we can't answer that question. We don't know why we believe it. Then we can't explain why we believe in God. We can't explain what's wrong with the world. We can't explain what the solution. If we don't know how to answer this question, we're stuck. So what do we say, church? Let's read this together. I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. These eyewitnesses report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Verse 20, Peter says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone, someone's own interpretation. Nobody just write this stuff down and it happens. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Man couldn't sit there and go, hey, we're going to make this happen. It doesn't happen. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And when we read the Bible, we come across phrases like, and the Lord said, thus says the Lord. And God said to Moses, it's God speaking. These people made no bones about it. These aren't our words. These aren't from man. They're from God himself. They weren't shy about claiming that. And here's where our friends with other worldviews are going to speak up and say, see, I just can't believe that. They'll say, men wrote the Bible. And because men wrote the Bible, I can't trust it. Then show me a book, dear friend, 
that was not written by man. Because if your standard is, I don't believe anything that man has written, what are you reading? What are you watching? What are you listening to? We've just tossed out the entire library with that one really foolish statement. And you're a man and you're a woman, but you're okay going with your gut, going with your feeling, going with your rationale. What makes you so trustable? What makes you so infallible that you will trust you, but you won't trust these men who claim to have been used by God to write this book? How can you believe you and not them? And they'll say, well, because I'm a science person. I told you last week, right, little eight-year-old kid in Bible school this year who said, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm a science guy. I'm not a, I'm not a faith guy. So I said, well, I just can't believe the Bible because, you know, it's, it's, I'm a science person. Okay, Einstein, setting aside the fact that we've got 25,000 archaeological digs and more every single day, that continue to affirm and confirm the validity of the Bible. We need to understand this, science people, and I love science, I'm a science person too. But science depends on something called the scientific method. The scientific method requires that something must be observable, something must be measurable, and something must be repeatable. Well, here's the problem with trying to apply the scientific method to the Bible. I've already told you it's historic. It's history. Therefore, you can't do the scientific method because history's not observable. History's not measurable. History's not repeatable. You prove history not by the scientific method. Does that make sense? You prove history by the evidentiary method. What is the evidence? What is the proof? And in the evidentiary method, unlike the scientific method, you ask questions like this. Are the sources reliable? Can you corroborate different sources? Do their stories line up? You've got to look at the internal evidence in it, the external evidence outside of it. Are there other evidences that support these sources, that validate it or contradict the sources? Listen, I, I know I'm not the smartest guy on the planet, but just based on the evidentiary method alone, I think the case for the Bible is incredibly compelling. It's far more compelling than what any other worldview has presented. So I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And these eyewitnesses report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Over 40 authors, three languages, three continents, over 1,500 years of time, and they tell one unified, cohesive story of God's work 
to redeem this world. That's one reason I choose to believe the Bible. It's just far more logical, rational, scientific. And to be honest, it just feels true. But the reason I really believe the Bible is because that's how I met Jesus. And I don't mean a concept of Jesus. And I don't mean I met the historical character Jesus. I met Jesus, the one who died for me and the one who rose. It's through the Bible that I've come to know him personally. I can tell you how he's walked with me. I can tell you how he's changed my life. Chuck, I can tell you how he's still changing my life. I can tell you how he's been my strength when I hadn't had any. I can tell you when he's held me together when everything else has fallen apart. I can tell you that I've stood in some pretty dark places, but I've stood every time with hope and confidence in him. And I pray today that you know him. And if you came here today not knowing him, I pray today that the Holy Spirit is waking you up to go, hey, there's something to this Bible. I'm dishonest if I don't give it another look. And if there's something to this Bible, then there's got to be something to the main character of this Bible, who is Jesus, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I need to give him another look. Grace Life people who already know Jesus, I'm just asking you, we believe, we believe. What do you believe? I'm asking you today to tell me. I want to hear you. Do you believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God? That means he wrote it. Do you believe the Bible is the inerrant, completely truthful Word of God? Do you believe that the Bible is the infallible, it will never fail Word of God? Yes. Then here's the big question. Do you believe the Bible is the authoritative, final authority over all of life, Word of God? By saying yes, here's what you just said. God's Word has the final say over my life. I don't do anymore what I want to do. I'm not my God. I'm not my source of truth. But if I really believe the Bible is the inspired and errant, infallible, authoritative word of God, I have no choice but to humble myself before it and walk in obedience to it. I don't get to pick and choose. Well, this part suits me, but this part doesn't. I'll ignore that part. If we believe what we say we believe, are we living that out? You say, you, you kind of talked to us about that last week and I'm gonna talk to you about it again next week. Because there's gotta be consistency. Because our worldview determines beliefs, beliefs determine values, values determine the way you live your life. And if we're not living our life according to God's word, that means our worldview is, I don't believe that it is the final authority over my life. It's not 
in my value system, something else is, and now that's reflected in my belief, my behavior, right? So maybe today we've been walking in disobedience to this word. And today God's calling his people to repent and turn and walk in the light as he is in the light. We can church because Jesus came. He gave us life. He died on the cross. We're no longer slaves to sin. We've been set free. We've been redeemed. There's a new power that's operating in us. The presence of the power of God's Holy Spirit inside of us so that we can walk according to this word. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's stand. God, we bow before you today. God, I pray that we would be in awe of what a miracle it is to have the very breath of God on paper, on a screen in front of us today. And God, it is easy to get religious and sentimental and feel stirred up in our hearts and check the boxes that yes, we believe it is the inspired and errant and fallible word of God. And that's vitally important. But if we fail to live and believe that it is the authority, final authority over our lives, it, it does not matter. So Holy Spirit, would you line us up today? with the truth of God's never changing word. Because of Jesus, we can be lined up. Because of Jesus, we can be found faithful. Because of your, your Holy Spirit in us, we can walk according to your ways. Because once and for all, Jesus died, was buried and rose again. And it's in his name that we pray. Come on church, let's worship.